What up, everyone? Welcome back to the Fitness Stuff for Normal People podcast. I'm Tony. And I'm Mariana. And it is no secret the fitness industry, the one we're in right now, it sucks. Whether it's the corrupt multi-billion dollar supplement and weight loss industry or the endless supply of influencers promoting absolutely anything just to drive page views. The bottom line is we're not trying to just provide another fitness podcast, but completely change the fitness industry for the better by providing you with the knowledge and tools to give you the confidence in applying the best possible training and nutrition in to your own life, where today, I haven't been this hyped about an episode outline in a long time. We're going into the top five metrics you need to be tracking when it comes to your health. If you've been listening to the show for more than five minutes, you understand that your health is a lot more than just one number, just a piece of food you ate, just one workout, just any one Thing. And there are almost an infinite amount of metrics that you can track today on your iPhone, your fitness wearable. I think the Apple Watch tracks over 100 by itself, which is oh absolutely gosh. insane. Yeah. But today we're going to cover our top five metrics that are worth paying attention to that can shed light on exactly how you're taking care of your health as a whole, along with how to improve each and every one. And if you really like this episode or just the podcast in general, make sure to give us a five-star review wherever you're listening. And you can also follow us now over on Spotify. And if you want more after each episode, join us on our premium page for just $5 a month, where you get a bonus Q&A episode every Friday, where we answer your own questions. It's a great way to get to interact with you guys. We know that this space can be a bit more nuanced, so go ahead and ask away. Just by being a Fitness Stuff Premium member, you're entered in our $300 Legion Supplement giveaway every single month. So sign up is in our show notes below, and we'll see you over there. Premium questions have been popping off lately. They're so good. The Q&A have been popping off lately, going to deloads. I'm like, dang it, we almost need to make this a full freaking podcast episode. Anywho, <laughs> quick shout out to our day ones over at Legion. And usually we highlight some products, which are always sick. I know I've been using and relying there whey protein more and more as I get a little bit busy I'll have days where I'll do two or three shakes which is totally fine to do to hit your protein goal that is way better than just getting far below that line when you're on the go but today I want to highlight their books I know all the time we talk about this is an education first company this was a company that sold a book before it turned into a supplement company the books bigger leaner stronger and thinner leaner stronger which is essentially the same one made for women I cannot recommend enough as a staple for people who are trying to get a better understanding of the training nutrition basics that will get them 90% of the progress. Mm -hmm. I can't recommend it enough. I know the PDF is on sale for like six bucks, which I'm a little old fashioned. I like the paperback, but it's only 17 bucks. And I promise you that book is going to do more for you in terms of understanding of training, nutrition, lifestyle, than any number of accounts, any amount of time spent online in just that short amount of pages. So that's what I want to recommend today. If you have not read those books, it's six bucks for the PDF version. Use the Legion link down in our bio and just type in code FSPOD or FSPOD at checkout for 20% off your first order. That does work with books too, or double points for every order after that let's talk about it how are you feeling early recording. i'm ready i've been sitting here wait, waiting for you so i'm usually the late one by just a few minutes but feels good i know to be. i was sitting here <laughs> s sipping on my coffee reading a little bit more and you texted me you're like hey i'm gonna be late i just shattered glass all over my i'm like late to what we don't record for another hour i'm like oh <laughs> <shit>. <laughs> that was today so you got me today clean up glass we'll do that afterwards but i'm pumped about this we talk about this on every freaking episode as different health metrics, but we've never actually done a list of health metrics. I know. I know. We have these brainstorm sessions and I think it was just something that we were talking about the things that are important. I think we were talking about a few of them and then it's like, let's just make a freaking list. It is insane. I was looking this up. The Apple health app on your iPhone that exceeds over a hundred different metrics tracking your health. A comprehensive blood panel can eclipse over 
80 different biomarkers. There's so much stuff to pay attention to today. Health metrics, these can range from just your BMI to even like subjective measures of well-being, like how you feel on a day-to-day basis on your stress, things like that. So we put this list together for our top five. And I think some too that are quite surprising. I know the first one on the list is going to be a little surprising for a lot of people, but to be clear, we based our top five list off of two main things moving forward. Two main things. The first one is how closely related it is to all cause mortality or death from all causes as you age, right? What's going to make you die earlier, right? So how closely it's related to all cause mortality and even more importantly, not just lifespan, but health span, which is what we talked about. How closely related it is to your quality of life, which is huge. And that's the two metrics that we really base this list off of. These are what really matter long-term. And I know we hammer hard. I mean, we're pretty clear about this on our podcast, right? Like looking good's cool right now, but having important goals for forever, long-term decades from now is so underrated. So yeah. underrated. I think it wasn't too long ago when I mentioned that one of my long-term goals was just to be like strong enough so I could get up off the toilet when I'm older and not yeah. help. <laughs> but seriously, that's the number one reason people get checked into assisted living. Yeah. is because they can't do one half rep of a bodyweight squat to get off the toilet. Mm-hmm. And I don't know about you, but it's probably pretty clear your quality of life's going down yeah. once you get checked into assisted living. We're in our 20s. So it's so easy for us to look past these numbers. And I know we were on a losing streak in Fortnite last night, me and my roommate. So I was up a little late and I'm going a little low on sleep. So I'm not going to try. I'm trying not to screw this up. It was a rough <laughs> night. It was a rough night. These little 14-year-old Asian Pacific kids. <laughs> beating us up. Anywho, let's start off this list in no particular order because they're all five important. And this one is something that I dove deep into this last year specifically and hadn't realized how important this one was. And this is even for people in your 20s, young adults, it's blood pressure. Your blood pressure, right? That inflatable thing that the doctors put around your arm kind of looks like a little arm floaty in the pool. Most people are aware of this or those things outside of like CVS, you can slide your arm into. I did that as a kid when my mom would pick up medicine and stuff. And this is something that I think most people need to pay attention to ASAP. Why does this matter is because heart disease kills one in five people and is the number one leading cause of death around the world, beating out cancer, stroke, respiratory disease. Heart disease is more likely to kill you than anything else long term. And blood pressure is one of the biggest predictors of heart disease. But here's the data that blew my mind. Data from the American Heart Association. Half, half of Americans have hypertension. Over one in four young adults have hypertension on top of that. Over one in four young adults. So not just elevated blood pressure, but clinical hypertension. It's especially elevated in people who use ADHD medication, nicotine users, bodybuilders, and others who just carry high levels of stress around the clock. Young people, in their 20s need to be paying attention because this is oftentimes something thought as an elderly person worry. One in four young adults has hypertension, meaning constant readings over 130, over 80. Those numbers were staggering to me. And that, I mean, to Mariana, she's like, yeah, that makes sense. America's pretty (laughs) overweight. I'm like, well, but half. We're just not the healthiest. And blood pressure is one of those metrics that it's crazy how much of a difference your lifestyle can make when it comes to your blood pressure. And it's very malleable. Again, genetics do definitely play a role in it, but we are the most, one of the most sedentary large groups of people. And we're not, we don't prioritize like baseline health in our society in America. So it's surprising. It's shocking, but it also is like 
this is a large consequence of that that is kind of swept under the rug, I feel like. Yeah. And what I think why it's important that this is on the list is this is one of the most manageable metrics that you can improve just through lifestyle intervention, mm-hmm. not through medication, even though there is high blood pressure medication. This is one of the biggest and more immediate changes. I mean, you can see changes in days to weeks with this, where sometimes health metrics take months to years to really take effect. And that's why it still blows my mind. Now, to give you an example of what and why this is important. So your blood pressure is essentially the force that your blood pushes out against the walls of your blood vessel, specifically your arteries as your heart pumps blood. Now, when you get blood pressure drawn, you typically get two numbers, like you'll hear 120 over 80, your systolic and diastolic pressure. The first number is representing the pressure in your arteries when the heart beats or pushes out the blood. The second number, the diastolic number, represents the pressure in your arteries when your heart is at rest between beats. And typically, you want to be under 120 over 80 all year long. All year long, you want to be under 120 over 80. And then what's considered high blood pressure or hypertension is if you are over 130 over 80. If that is a constant reading is over 130 over 80. So this doesn't have a lot of wiggle room. Now, to give you an example of why this is important, because what high blood pressure does over time is it damages your arteries by hardening them and making them less elastic. This is going to decrease blood and flow of oxygen to all organs and tissue in your body, including your heart. Now, imagine your blood pressure kind of like a highway and your blood is the traffic on it. And when you have high blood pressure, traffic becomes congested and full of, let's say, semi-trucks, which puts a lot of stress and excess weight on the road. And the highway is meant to handle occasional influxes of traffic like that, kind of like your body naturally has higher and lower blood pressure when you're stressed, when you're working out. But if it is constantly elevated, the highway starts to corrode, potholes form, and eventually the road needs to be completely replaced or something fatal could happen like a complete collapse. This is an example of a heart attack or a stroke. And this is something where I think it, it puts even more importance if you have elevated blood pressure when you are young, because if you build a fresh highway, it, you can put all the traffic on you want and you're not gonna notice a difference for a decade. But in a decade, it's gonna be something that you really can't reverse, right? So even if it's slightly elevated, even if it's just above 120 over 80, this is something you want to take control of now because anything over those numbers and you're putting stress on that highway system, that's going to build up over time. And I don't think most people realize that. It's like I told you, my primary cares have just waved off the slightly elevated blood pressure for years. And I didn't realize yeah. how big of a problem that could be down the road. It's unfortunate. And it's also like, it's that kind of just shows you how overwhelmed our healthcare primary care is because, you know, if yours is just slightly elevated and the next person's is hypertensive, okay, what's more of a priority? Yeah. And the sick person even- first, we're not preventative. And that's even the crazy part is I've had readings over that and it might be at like 10 in the morning and it just gets waved off as, oh, you know what? You were probably in a rush over here. That's why it's elevated. Mm -hmm. Or you have white coat hypertension, which is just hypertension because you're nervous at the doctor's office. It gets waved off and it was never checking anything past that. And I'm like, this is kind of a big problem. And especially for not just young people, but it's very, very common in the bodybuilding community, which I think is not just due to high PED use in certain areas, but simply just weighing more than you should already negatively influences your blood pressure. You're going through extreme diets, cutting and bulking. You're often overtraining, very often using high stimulants, which is another big thing that we're going to talk about. And sometimes even increased visceral fat surrounding your organs, which is going to help push that number up a little bit. So even the picture perfect physique of health, these bodybuilders are usually some of the people who are higher risk 
for this. So we're going to talk about who is at higher risk, how to measure it, what's worth checking, and then how to improve it. Because like we said, this is one of the biggest things you can take control of your lifestyle. Now, the goal is going to be to have blood pressure under 120 over 80 at all times. Even reading slightly over those numbers and you're putting extra stress on your kidneys, your cardiovascular system, encouraging clotting, kidney-related disease, stroke, heart disease, the things that you don't want. And it should be taken seriously. Now, I recommend this, and this is what I have, and I'll measure it now about once a week, but I used to measure it daily when I got it. It's just buying one of those blood pressure cuffs at home. You can buy one on Amazon for 30 to 50 bucks. It's high quality. And I think it's well worth investing in if you've had slightly elevated numbers in the past. And honestly, what I would say for measuring, if it is slightly elevated, check it every day when you first get it until you get a handle on it. Check it every day, just like you're stepping on the scale. Just measure it right when you wake up, maybe several other times through the day until you have a comprehensive look at what's going on. And then once you do, you can just check it once a month, once every few weeks after that, just to make sure things are good. Do you use the one that you have to listen for the heart? For the- oh, no, 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 no. There's oh my- those cuffs okay, now that it, you attach it to a machine and it tracks yeah. your heartbeat. It you. <laughs> you got the stethoscope. Yeah, you have to sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get one of those that you have to No, That would be ridiculous. But yeah, even those, those cuffs, it's I think 36 bucks. We'll put it in the link in the bio down below. But to note real quick too, before mm-hmm. you, if you are overweight and you're going to the doctors and they don't have, if you have a large, even if you have a larger arm, if you just have a larger arm and the cuff doesn't fit that well around your arm, you need to speak up. You would be so surprised at how many doctors don't take that into account and use too small of a cuff. And then of course your blood pressure reading is going to be much higher than it is. That happens all the time. It's very unfortunate. Most of the time they do have an extra cuff in the back that is bigger. And if they don't, don't let them record your blood pressure because it's not accurate. I actually didn't know that. I didn't know you could just request. I mean, it makes sense, but I had never thought about it like that. Same thing too. If you're just taking these measures at like a pharmacy, one of those sit down ones that have been used a hundred times per day Mm -hmm. for years might not be the most accurate reading you're going to get. And it's only a $36 investment. In my opinion, that's worth potentially adding years to your life or managing things like this. Now, if you have hypertension, Get a cardiologist with experience in your demographic and look at your entire lifestyle instead of just prescribing medication. I think that can be a useful first step for starters, right? Especially if you're in like the bodybuilding community, look for a cardiologist with experience with active individuals and bodybuilders because that's a huge, huge difference. There's just a different lifestyle. Now, lifestyle interactions that you can do yourself. Now, there are some basics that we're going to cover, which are pretty simple. If you're smoking, Mm. stop it right? Drinking in excess. It's not going to be a surprise when those numbers are elevated. Look at your body weight and body composition, what we'll dig into later. Another one, which I would still consider a basic before we get into different lifestyle and supplements is look at your sleep quality. Sleep apnea is a massive contributor that this is something that we talked about with Derek for more plates, more dates. A lot of men as they age have sleep apnea and just go unchecked their entire lives. And it contributes to so many. What is wrong with you guys? Why is it that it's like, Things like that, it's just, it's a I'm not thing, even trying to be sexist, but when it comes down to going to the doctor and something's wrong, it's just, you just let it happen. But sleep apnea is kind of a hard one to check. Cause it's like, how do you, I mean, dudes snore a lot of the time, but to get diagnosed with sleep apnea, you have to have like a sleep test machine sent to your house or go sleep in a lab. Like it's not an easy thing. It's not something that just pops up like on a scale. It's like, oh, I should get that checked out. But sleep apnea, massive, massive contributor that a lot of guys go undiagnosed. So look at your sleep quality. Those are the basics. Now, looking at lifestyle, 
cardio activity into your routine is one of the biggest things you can do from a lifestyle perspective. Adding in around 75 minutes of aerobic activity per week, probably going to be the biggest game changer you can have past your body weight, smoking, drinking, and stuff like that. It increases the amount of capillaries in your body. It increases the amount of capillaries in your body. I would say cardio consistent is single-handedly even you can do, you can, especially if you're sedentary, if you are sedentary and you don't lose any weight at all, but you get to that 75 minutes of aerobic activity per week, you can absolutely improve your blood pressure going from sedentary to more physically active and not even see any weight loss yet. Again, adding in that weight loss can really help bring it down even more, but I think it is so, it's like, that's why you should be doing cardio. You shouldn't be doing cardio for weight loss. You should be doing cardio for your blood pressure and your heart health. That's so, what I ultimately ended up doing it for because I hated cardio for so long just because if I'm not playing a sport or something competitive, I just, I would rather jump off a cliff is what it seems like. Yeah. Am I being a baby? Mm-hmm. Yes. But that's what ultimately got me to do it. I'm like, well, it's not affecting my body composition. I'm not trying to do anything different there. But it was when I really wanted to take change in my blood pressure, that made the most significant change. And it's not even a ton. It's not even yeah. a ton. And even on top of that, and we talked about this in our ice bath and sauna use, sauna specifically post-workout weight training or cardio session has actually been shown to decrease both diastolic and systolic blood pressure by about seven to 10 points post with lasting improvements to your systolic blood pressure more than just cardio alone. So if you have that available to you, that is absolutely massive to take advantage of. I would still say cardio first, then sauna use second. Mm -hmm. On top of that, just with how big of a difference cardio can make. The sauna just does this by causing your blood vessels to more dilate and artery walls to relax, which that cardio aspect doesn't really come in nearly as much. So that's why it's a huge talk. But we did that more in our ice bath and sauna use. Another big thing people don't look like, and I know we've sprinkled this in some episodes before, is keeping your electrolytes in check, more specifically potassium and magnesium. Potassium, I know we did we went down this wormhole a long time ago. 98% of Americans fall short of the RDA of potassium. And it's something that you have to freaking try to hit if you want to get control of it through foods. And you can't really buy it in supplements because it actively lowers blood pressure so much. If you take too much of a dose in a supplement at once, if you already have existing low blood pressure, it can actually lower it to an unsafe level. That's why you can't get it in more than 99 milligram doses in a supplement, even though the RDA is around 4,200. So my dad just got a new cardiologist and his last one was not the best. And one of the first things she did was check his potassium, check his magnesium, give him recommendations for potassium and magnesium, like rich foods, got him recommended magnesium supplement. And I was so impressed, but it is so rare for to see that happen, especially, you know, he's been struggling with his heart for his whole life almost. And he's never heard that I've told him, but yeah, (laughs) but no, but from like a professional doctor setting, they rarely are like, Hey, let's look at your diet. Let's look at everything else instead of Mm -hmm. here's some meds, anything like that, which is huge. Here's a big one. I struggle with this one. You got to limit your stimulant use, limit your stimulant use caffeine. If you are ADHD, and this is what I was going to say, a population to especially get checked if you're young is if you're on ADHD medication, That's something you want to keep a close, close look on. And most, at least from what I've talked to other people, most doctors who prescribe ADHD medication don't really mention that you should also be keeping an eye on your blood pressure while doing this. Of course not. And how many kids are on it? Oh my gosh. My mom just retired. She's fifth grade or fifth and sixth grade. All more than half of her students every single year. And fifth and sixth grade? Mm -hmm. (sighs) Mm-hmm. 
but, but like mm-hmm. it's a, especially now the last decade or so how prevalent the use has become but it's rarely something that you want to keep in check but that is massive because stimulant use can drive that number up now when it comes to quick supplementation which we'll go over whenever we're doing supplements and i mentioned something that might be able to help remember people will always go past the cardio go past the sauna go past the body composition yeah. go past everything it's like these oh well let me just go buy these yeah let me go <laughs> buy these supplements this. these supplements can help in small dosage at, you know maybe improve it from a small small point of view this will do nothing if you're not making any other change i'm going to yeah. make that clear right now because so many people just jump to the supplements because it's something you can order on amazon from your couch right now Right. But the biggest ones that I've seen are one omega-3 supplementation, supplementation, mostly for blood viscosity and overall cardio health. Astralgus extract. Actually, this one was interesting when looking at it, but this one reduces the hardening of your arteries, cholesterol absorption and plaque buildup. It's also the only supplement shown clinically to actually regenerate kidneys, which I thought was very, very interesting. I was going to do a little bit more research on this as well. And then the final one is pomegranate juice, but make sure it's not from concentrate but pomegranate juice, mostly for the nitric oxide effects it has, but it prevents the hardening of arteries by reducing blood vessel damage, as well as reverses the progression of arterial hardening because it's so rich in antioxidants. So I know a lot of people, especially in the bodybuilding community, it's a little bit more popular, drink a glass of pomegranate juice first thing every single day, just for numerous health benefits, but that's a big one. Now, Mm -hmm. this one's gonna be a fun one. Let's go down the list. Number five, we got blood pressure. Number four, what we got? We're talking about stress. Speaking of stress, this is a good segue because we just mentioned it. We Stress, I mean, we talk about it all the time. And I would say out of all of these, it's definitely the most difficult to measure because mm-hmm. everyone experiences stress differently. And there's different levels of stress. There's actually three different types. So there's acute. So that would be an immediate reaction to any new challenging fearful situation. Then you also have episodic acute. So that could be frequent episodes of acute stress. And then you have chronic stress. So that's high levels of stress for an extended period of time. So there's not much specificity there. There's no actual set duration of what qualifies as an extended period. And high levels for you may be different from the person next to you. So there's a lot that goes into kind of understanding how to monitor it and measure it from your standpoint. So we're going to discuss a few things here, but we're really going to talk about this chronic stress piece. And does the episodic acute kind of overlap with chronic sometimes? I'm like, I, I feel like some people in certain life situations who experience a lot of frequent episodes of acute stress, would that overlap sometimes with chronic or are they completely separate? They're separate because... Chronic is kind of the sustained elevated levels of, you could say, high cortisol. So consistently elevated. Oh, like doesn't come down kind of a thing. Does not come down. Acute, it's, you know, that instant reaction. You're going to release a lot of adrenaline and it's almost like having panic attacks regularly. That would be acute. And then you bring yourself back down. That's a more extreme example, but that's why it's different from chronic. Wait, so just to make it so episodic acute. So that would be, I feel like more people experience like the lifestyle can set that, that up a little bit, right? If your job is high stress, if you're moving a lot, if everything's going around where chronic would be more due to, I mean, even things like, I feel like being trapped in like a very unhappy relationship, a terrible job, your upbringing, 
in poverty, like things like that around your whole lifestyle that are just constantly there would probably mm-hmm. add into that side of things, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, okay. Having that distinguishment is important, but why it's important to track your stress levels in general, just especially your chronic stress, is because when you have chronic stress over the long long term, this can have a negative impact on your health. It contributes to anxiety, cardiovascular disease, depression, high blood pressure, what we were just talking about, weakened immune system, poor gut health, people struggle with migraines, stress headaches. The list could go on and on. So even if there isn't this exact you know, number that you could look out for all the time, just being aware of your stress and doing things to know that you're aware of your stress and being a bit more proactive can have a huge impact on your health for the long term. So there's two components that are typically looked at when you measure and analyze stress. So there's your stress triggers. So that's the factors that cause stress. So that's typically what you would see a lot more if you're working with your therapist or you have a psychiatrist and you're working together to develop your to understand your triggers, what's causing this. And then you have your stress response. So how you respond to the stress triggers on an emotional, biological, or cognitive level. So we're going to really dive into this stress response piece. And again, everyone responds to triggers differently. Events that might be stressful for one person can be easily managed by the other. So That's why there's yet to be one reliable method of measuring stress that's developed. Will we have it one day? Honestly, I don't know, but I think we'll continue to see more tools and resources that make it a bit more accurate in terms of what we're looking for when we're understanding what chronic stress does to our body. I'm so So, pumped we're talking about this. Like This blows my mind. We haven't yet. Like How many times have we brought up – I mean just even in relation to your body composition – Achieving a weight loss, like any goal that you're trying to achieve, like we always talk about how much stress can just suppress, suppress, suppress. But yeah. it's one, it's kind of like when we, I think you talk about, you bring up this really good point a lot, which is like when someone just says, well, just improve your sleep. It's like that statement's kind of meaningless because, yeah, it's important. But like, how the hell do you do that? Same thing with stress. It's like, just improve yes. your stress. What does that even mean? Uh, so yeah. I'm so pumped we're talking about this because we haven't had a chance to actually break it down yet. And also, 75% of Americans experience moderate to high stress levels in the past month. So this is an ongoing review that is done to kind of take measurements, mostly in the workplace, about chronic stress levels, and it's continuously updated. Americans are stressed across the goddamn board, and this also goes into high school. High school students are stressed. It just seems we normalize stress. Big time. It should not be normalized at all. Those, what I was saying that it can contribute to should not be underestimated. It plays a large, large role in many diseases, mental health issues. And for some reason, it's not the first thing people go to. I also want to recommend if you are someone who's interested in gut health and the brain-gut connection. We have a whole episode Mm. on that. If you haven't listened to it yet, we dive a little bit deeper in the connection between our brain and our gut. And it's not completely, it's not the same as this, but it kind of shows you just how much our stress can influence our physiological processes in the body. So how can we begin to measure this, start to get an understanding of where we're at? So we're going to go through a few things here. The first one 
being heart rate variability. Now, this is not something that you can look at on your own and know that this is a source of chronic stress, but it is something that can be used in combination with the other measurements that I'm going to be talking about mm -hmm. that might be helpful. And there are a lot of devices now that track heart rate variability, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, I know most... my aura ring, we talked a lot about it on that health tracking device episode. I think aura ring and whoop do the mm -hmm. best because they have the best connection and you can't have like an Apple watch, I think does it, but not super it's accurate not anymore or in whoop, I think are the top two that can measure mm -hmm. it. So what is it? If you're measuring your heart rate variability, you're looking at the variation in time between consecutive heartbeats. It doesn't just look at how fast your heart is beating, but how the time period between heartbeats changes. So this heart rate variability is controlled by your autonomic nervous system, which includes the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system or your fight or flight and rest and digest. So if you've heard of those two pieces, your fight or mm -hmm. flight, that's gonna be activated when you're experiencing, you know, a lot of that acute stress or episodic stress, or if you're experiencing chronic stress, you can have, be in that fight or flight mode, not as intensely. So you're not experiencing that fear in those nerves. You don't feel like you're trying to run from a bear, but it's still, there. You can experience that when you have these chronic stress levels. So when you're in that state, your autonomic nervous system is unbalanced and this imbalance can show up in your heart rate variability. So HRV is lowered when you're in fight or flight mode and higher when you're in that calm state. Now I didn't include exact numbers to look out for, because this is the type of thing where you would have to start tracking your HRV consistently to kind of get yeah. a baseline. And then you can, if you have your wearables, it can kind of tell you where you're at in terms of what would be good or not so great heart rate variability. And if it's a metric that you have to improve based off of whatever your wearable is telling you, that can be an indicator that maybe we're experiencing some chronic stress, but that's not the only thing it looks at. It just might tell you that chronic stress is at play here. And yeah. I thought that it was worth including because heart rate variability, I mean, some people will say this is this alone is a metric everyone should be tracking. For a lot of people, it is something that yeah. can be really helpful. So I felt like it was worth including. And it's because, easy if you have a little tracker, yeah. right? I think that's why yeah. that blew my mind when we were looking at the relationship between your nervous system when we were doing that. I mean, we did the episode is on like the Aura, Apple, we did all that kind of stuff. If I remember the numbers correctly, because it's a good point, because when people first look at it, I'll have a lot of clients that'll get the Aura ring or people on social media that see me wear it and they'll get it. And since high numbers are more associated with that rest and digest and low is more associated with the fight or flight people might get on it and they'll have a low HRV, you know, objectively low HRV and they'll be just totally worried. But I think that was a big point yeah. in that episode too. That's important. Any number can be fine. It's over time where yours is trending high and low, Yeah. right? Like on a day-to-day -day basis, if your HRV is lower than normal, that usually means that you're overtrained, under-recovered or vice versa. If it's higher than normal, that means you're probably at a good resting place because i think the median numbers for males and females were around 35 to 38 if i have my yes. numbers correctly hrv yeah. like that was a more normal i think mine is like 27 to 30 some of my clients will come in and be like oh i'm at 75 i'm like screw you but <laughs> I'm, I'm happy <laughs> for you but yeah that's the big thing it's not like a, any number is objectively good or bad because i know some people will mm -hmm. check right now and be like holy crap 
am I chronically stressed because my HRV is 20? It's like, not necessarily, not necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Then getting into the next one, which I'm sure that some people could expect, and this is, none of these are perfect, but cortisol. So having some measurement of your cortisol. Now this is where you have to get specific because our cortisol can rise and decline at so many different points points during the day. Maybe you're just experiencing that it can rise with acute stress versus chronic stress. So that's just something to take into account there. But today, salivary and hair cortisol levels are routinely used as a biomarker of psychological stress related to mental or physical diseases. So that's what is routinely used. And it's been shown that the association between chronic stress and cortisol changes during the first hour of post-sleep in the morning. Mm -hmm. So salivary cortisol was found to be elevated in chronically stressed subjects from this review. And I, we will add this in the show notes, but this was an incredible review. It summarized all the different markers you could look at for evaluating chronic stress, but salivary cortisol was found to be elevated in chronically stressed subjects compared to unstressed subjects when you did that first hour of post-sleep in the morning. These Most of these people were all monitored subjects, and it was in a setting where you had someone working with you to take mm. your cortisol levels, but you have to be There's so many different confounding variables that could play into a role of why your cortisol is elevated. So it's something that typically you should, if you are measuring it, I would say measure it for the first, if you're looking at it, take a year and if you can measure it every three months to kind of look at the Mm -hmm. trends, which again, not most people don't have access to do that. Most people don't even get their cortisol levels tested just period, but It is something, especially if you're struggling with even burnout or just you are feeling stressed all the time, you're already in therapy and it's something you're working on, you have a coexisting mood disorder like anxiety or depression, I think it could be worthwhile to use as a metric to see if any of the interventions that you start to implement are working, but it can be inaccurate and it's just one measure. But again, none of these are perfect. I'm wondering too, because until you brought this up today, I hadn't realized you could measure cortisol through hair. I'm like, do you think hair would give you a more long-term average than a blood or saliva test? Because I know, I mean, in a blood or saliva test, cortisol can fluctuate within a 15-minute span of acute stress. So you could be high or low based on what's happening right now. But I'm wondering if hair would almost be like the HbA1c for blood sugar, right? Like a three-month rolling average. Mm-hmm. Do you know that or no? I'm trying so to wonder. So that is f- from this review, they found that hair cortisol was the most significant biomarker for evaluating stress, but yeah. on a chronic level versus urinary. Some people test it in the urine. That is not a good mm. measure at all. Blood is also, again, that's where you get more of the issue with the overlapping acute bouts of elevated cortisol. But the hair, and that's not as readily accessible. Salivary is definitely more readily accessible. I was going to say, where do you terms, even get a hair test? Is it like yeah, online? You I've, send it in or something? I have no idea if you have to do that in like a lab setting because. I like, feel like a company to... would have done that by now where you would just send them a hair sample. I mean, you can send your yeah. poop to somebody and they'll test it for you. You could probably I send know. hair somewhere. So I'm sure you can. Which I, um, I'll say after the episode, we'll look into it. And if there's anything we find, like any cool we'll company that does it, we'll put it in the show notes for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So then 
I wanted to get into, and this is the most accessible for everyone, and I would say this is where you should start, is using a perceived stress scale. So this is just a standardized scale that you fill out online and you can calculate your amount of stress based off of how you are feeling, how you think your stress is. And the questions don't focus on events you're currently experiencing, but your emotional and mental state. So it can give you a really good idea, even if you're sweeping a lot under the rug, of kind of where you're at mentally. And you could go fill this out weekly, monthly. It's something you can turn to often to track to see if you're starting to work on your stress. Okay, is this having effect on how I perceive my stress? Because Everyone experiences it a little bit differently, and that's why I really like this scale. Again, it's not some super accurate measurement like taking your blood pressure, but stress is not compl- – there's not one number that defines high stress. I mean, that these are also measures of health, right? Not just things like your blood pressure that you can measure, but these are subjective tests that you can run, mm-hmm. which are huge. Yeah. And I know, too, if you do get your blood work done, because I know when we talk about it, like I know we, we work with Merrick and they test a lot, too. Some other signals other than cortisol, because cortisol is, like Mariana just covered, going to be probably the number one thing you can check. But it also kind of bleeds into your CRP or your C-reactive protein if that's elevated. Your complete blood count or white blood cell really is what that's looking for. Or even your blood sugar levels over time, that HbA1c test. I know I don't shut up about it because I'm a diabetic and I get it done every three months. But even for everyone else, if your HbA1c is slightly elevated people might think, oh, maybe your pancreas isn't working. That could be a sign of chronic stress as well. Mm -hmm. So if you do get like a complete blood panel done, it's not just the cortisol that can be looking at. Like, for example, if you're rushing to the doctor and your cortisol spiked that day, but all these other numbers are falling in line, it's not as big of a worry if all of those are elevated, I think too, which is super interesting. But I was pumped we talked about that because I'm like stress, it's like stress and sleep, those things that bleed into everything we do Mm -hmm. that just, it's hard to track and measure. But I like really those. affect and- your quality of life. If you have at least one stress management technique every single day, you are going to significantly improve your quality of life. And a lot of people are very resistant to it for, honestly, I don't really know why, but I've been in therapy since I was 12. So I feel like I come from a point of privilege where I've, ever since I could remember, I've been really self-aware of like mm-hmm. where my mental state is at. But even as some tips just really baseline, nothing crazy. If you just include one of these like regular physical activity, I know we've talked about the benefits of that so often. Yeah, Limiting your screen time also sounds cliche, but how that oh, men- messes with your mental health just in general, trying to put your phone down before bed, like that can... Did we, did you get on the timer that I showed you about that I've been doing the last like month or so the app timer where at like 7 PM it silences and like pretty much darkens out all my social media apps. So I just, when I pick it up, it just won't let me go to those apps. Had you start Mm -hmm. using that yet? I just have downtime on my phone and I have a password on it that, cause like if I have downtime, but I could put in a password that I know, like I just will put in my password. Like it's not really enough, but I have something I suggest if you are the type of person that it's like, oh, I have downtime scheduled, but if it's a password that I just need to override, I'm going to override it. Like Mm -hmm. I'm that type of person. So I give my password to (laughs) – my boyfriend has my password, so I can't override it. It makes sense, but that's just funny. Yeah. Like I am – I've always – there's no shame in being the type of person that's like, 
I don't have that willpower. I'm not the type of person with willpower enough to see that and be like, oh, that means I can't go on it, even though I absolutely can. It's just well, not enough it's your for subconscious. Me. It yeah. rolls right through it and you don't <laughs> even realize what you're doing. But if you're someone who struggles with that, that's something that changed the freaking game. Go to your settings on your iPhone. I don't know how to use an Android because I don't associate with green textures, but <laughs> go on your iPhone, go to, <laughs> that was a joke if anyone is a green text, go to your iPhone, go to downtime, and you can literally choose the apps that it highlights out at certain times. Like I know I do mine from 7 p.m. till 8 a.m. where it just, I can't use social media. And it does take willpower because I think even you, it doesn't even use a password sometimes. You can just say extend for ignore 15 minutes or ignore for the day. Yeah, put a password on it and have one of, someone you trust, even if you don't live with like a, yeah. have a roommate make the password, have them write it down some, like have someone else make it. Call your mom and ask her to make your password. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But it, but, it really even does that, help. That short pause even helped me where it's just like, oh, do I want to be going on Instagram at 9 p.m. before? But no, I can just usually most of the time put it down. But if you're someone who struggles with that, look at it. Because that is, I feel like it's with stress, you're right. People, it's one of those things, and I do it too. Like it's one of those things that you can just push off because I feel like the urgent always kind of crushes the important. Like everyone knows that stress management is important, but it's so, like the urgent things that pop up in your day. I didn't start doing breath work post-workout and post-work, I'll do like a five-minute breathwork session after the gym in the morning and then after I get off work at like 5, 6 p.m. But it, I didn't start doing it consistently until I put it physically in my calendar and set a time like set a time for it. Mm -hmm. Because if I didn't do it, anything urgent, oh, I got to go grocery shop. Oh, I got to go pick up the eggs. I got to go meet my girlfriend for dinner. I got to go do X, Y, Z. It was five minutes, but until I put it in my schedule, and that's what I noticed for a lot of people, like the urgent will always crush whatever's important in your life if you don't schedule and make time for it. That is one of those things with stress where I just feel like you're right. It's just, it's so important, but people just push it off. Like it's a later date to complete thing to do. Mm -hmm. It's terrible. Yeah. It's terrible. Like Which uh, by the way, breath work, I'll give a quick little shout out. We talked about this. Your HRV is something that that's why I implemented it after a workout. And after I get off work is because I had a hard time shutting my brain off, but I can notice a five to 10 point jump in my HRV from a simple five minute breath work routine. It's like astounding, like it can literally, and that is literally shifting your body from that parasympathetic to sympathetic, that, that fight or flight to rest and digest instantaneously with your breaths. I know Shane from a long time ago was talking about, but that's a huge tool that you can make immediate shifts with that I think people could, I couldn't recommend it more. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> stress, right. man. What you going to do? What you going to do? Stress. I don't really have anything else to add there. No more on stress. Track it. No. Take it serious. Put it in your schedule. Do something about it <laughs> before it kills you. Now, let's talk about this. Sir Isaac Newton, the GOAT, first law of motion. A body at motion stays in motion. A body at rest stays at rest. There's going to come a day in every single person's life when your body is no longer capable of basic movements. That's usually what ends you up in assisted living. The longer you can keep your body moving, the later this day will come period. This was probably the easiest one to track your step count. This, and, and oh, yeah. it's like, okay, we've heard this before. We've heard it. Track it. I honestly rest. haven't been tracking mine lately Stays and it's been, so I feel my, I just hate my Apple watch. I hate wearing mm. it. So I've just been, but it's what? funny. Like I always make sure that I get in like two really long walks in during the day. It depends on the weather, but, and I'll walk a little bit at the gym. So I'm like, I really base it now since I was so used to tracking them. Like, I feel like I'm at a point where I'm like, I know when I'm not 
getting enough yeah. but well because i was about to say that in a little bit i'm like i don't my aura ring tracks it pretty diligently but i don't have to check it because it's one of those things where kind of like blood pressure track it a lot to get an understanding of where you're at until you're done correcting it i've seen people wear their apple watch around their ankle so it doesn't miss a step during the day it's like yeah. that doesn't it, just because you didn't track it didn't mean it didn't happen you know but i think a lot of people you sometimes have to track yourself for accountability to make it happen it does become a little obsessive over time where the around your ankle cracks me up because i'm like the watch is made for more than just a step counter like y'all know that right <laughs> you could mm -hmm. get something else and we've talked about how important this is in general there's not a magic step count number you can look at but i mean this is one of those things where i'm like every time i remind myself and this is a stupid rule i should start putting this on instagram every time there's an elevator and a stair i will be the annoying person even if i have like luggage at the airport to my girlfriend i'll be like let's go and we do the stairs and it's like mm -hmm. clink, clink, it's super loud and annoying but it's like every chance you get, realize you're not going to have that chance forever. And the longer you can keep doing those things, the longer you can take the stairs instead of the elevator or escalator, the longer you will be able to do that. So this is also encompassing daily movement as a whole, right? Specifically step count though, measured in research. And this is huge, right? This is to prevent and manage countless health benefits and conditions, right? Type two diabetes, depression, anxiety, obesity, arthritis, stroke, heart disease. All of this is very closely related to how much you're moving in a day, but even more specifically in research to your step count, like a, that massive meta-analysis out of Iran that we've brought up, I think a few times. And if you haven't heard of this one, it's incredible. I think it came out in 2021, but it actually looked at, I think it was 28,000 individuals over the course of decades. And it showed that the rate of all cause mortality or death from all cause decreased by 12% for every extra thousand steps you take per day. 12% decreased risk for all-cause mortality for every extra thousand steps you take per day. And this is from 3,000 was the lowest group they were looking at, upwards of 16,000. Now, here's where it got absolutely insane to me. The lowest step count group saw a threefold or 200% greater risk in all-cause mortality compared to the highest step count group. A threefold greater risk, so 200% increased risk. To put this in perspective, the low step count to high step count group saw a 200% increase. All-cause mortality rates only increase 70 to 80% in smokers versus non-smokers. 70 to 80% in smokers to non-smokers, 200% in the more sedentary versus the very active. That number I think should stick with people with how important it is mm -hmm. to get your step count, get your movement under control. And I feel like people like especially if you talk about the 10K goal, I feel like that can be so daunting for a lot of people to think yeah. about, especially if you work a desk job, but like eat and if you have kids, there's so many things, but it's not, if you just think about it a little bit more and have it just become one of those things, that's a habit. It can be as little as what, I think we've talked about, you've probably, you're probably going to say this at some point, but like 30 minutes out of your day, if you want to break that up, if you want to do that all in one sitting, typically it can be achieved, right? Is that kind of what it? Well, I mean, that's what we were, because in the episode we were talking about, like one for reference, the 10,000 number is essentially, it's a made up meaningless number. It just sounds good. I remember in that episode, yeah. it's not a magic number. Like if you can't get to 10K, it's like, oh, think bad things happen under that. Good things happen over that. Like we just said from that study, even 1,000 extra from where you're at has a massive effect yes, on what you're yeah. doing. For most cases, more is better, but I know what we tried to say here, cause it's hard to set a medium, like a minimum goal, but like 
look for small bite-sized bits to improve. And like anything we talk about in fitness, it's like track where you're at currently. Like what is your current lifestyle getting you today? Don't be embarrassed if it's 3,000, 4,000, 5,000. That's where a lot of people start. If you don't pay attention to it and you don't move a lot, you're probably in the two to 3,000 range. Instead of saying, okay, I'm at 3,000 and I need to be at 10,000, that's a massive change in what your day is going to look like. Mm -hmm. So instead of that, look to increase one to 2,000 for a couple of weeks. And then once that's normal, look to increase another one to 2,000, right? So if you're starting at three, aim for five. Once five becomes normal, aim for seven. If seven's manageable, aim for nine, right? Just keep doing those small increases instead of trying to do this big piece. But I mean, even smaller bite-sized bits, I know what we talked about is usually the best way to go about it. Yeah. Like I know a lot of people are like, oh my gosh, I got to add an hour walk to the end of my day or 30 minute walk. And that just never gets done. Because again, the urgent will always crush whatever's important. Oh, I got to pick the kids up. Oh, I didn't make dinner. I didn't meal prep. I got to do that you, instead. Today. I totally agree. So in the beginning when you're starting, but once you get to that point though, when you know what it looks like to say you have a step goal of 10,000, say that's your goal. When you know what that looks like to get there and you know how that feels to be doing that consistently, if you have a day where you haven't walked at all, that can, it's sometimes easier if you're like, no, I know that I feel better when I do this. I know that this is a priority versus just thinking it might be. That's where you can get a little bit more flexible. The beginning is the hardest part in establishing that yeah. kind of new habit. But like, for example, today, I haven't had much time. Tony and I are going to be, we film a lot. I personally haven't had much time to walk. Like it's a priority for me to get in a long walk in the evening. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I still know I have to cook. I still know I have to do all these other things. Yeah. But because I'm so used to it, like you are so used to meal prepping or cooking, it just becomes one of those things that you're able to prioritize. But yeah. that's well, just And you made a good point there. Once you realize how good it makes you feel, like to, like your body just aches less, you don't get as sore, your digestion is smooth as heck. It like I notice I have so much more energy on days that I get to split up with a few short walks so much more energy. Cause I know when you first start and you're like tired, you're like, Oh, I don't want to go on a walk. Just do it. Go outside for five minutes and tell me you don't feel better mm -hmm. after you just walk back inside. So look for those. And like even smaller bite-sized chunks. Cause like you said, you can put it at the end of your day. If you're just starting out, that might deter you. Yeah. <laughs> start with small things. Like I, I don't shut up about this enough more for even just the helps on your digestion. Add 10 minute walks after each meal, right? Just a 10 minute walk after breakfast, lunch, and dinner. That is easy. It's bite-sized. And it's automatic every time you eat, you know, you're going to go do that. That alone is going to add at least two to 3000 steps to your day at yeah. bare minimum, two to 3000 steps per day. So if you're at three, that just brought you to six and I guarantee you're going to notice such a big difference. All right. Mm -hmm. So that's one of those things where it's like, we don't want to set a minimum. I try and say for most people, seven to eight K is where I usually notice you start feeling your best. And even if you have a very busy, busy lifestyle and like you work a desk job, seven to eight K is still manageable without having to really adjust the rest of your day is what I notice. but mm -hmm. try and get more. These things freaking matter. Mm -hmm. These things matter. So that's what it is. That's number, what do we say? Three right now? We got blood yeah. pressure. We got stress. We got steps. And right now, honestly, steps is probably the easiest to track. Get that under control, get that mm -hmm. under control. And let's look at numero dos. We got two more. What we got. Two more. Okay. We're counting backwards. Okay. This is body composition. So people are probably very familiar with this and it's just quick. If you're not, I mean, I feel like a lot of people are obviously know what body composition is, but then maybe 
don't completely have an idea of what it encompasses. It's one of those things that people throw around a lot, but it just refers to the proportion of fat mass, so your body fat, to fat-free mass, which could include muscle, water, bones, organs, and minerals in your body. This is a key component for maintaining good just general health and longevity, and it's influenced by so many factors. So you have, of course, your genetics, environment, lifestyle choices, but I don't want this to be confused with BMI. So we Mm -hmm. did not put BMI on here for a reason. BMI is, has never been meant to be used in a clinical setting in terms of working individually with someone and telling them what to do based off of a BMI number. It was established for research so that people could study large populations and understand health trends for very large populations, but it's not meant for a clinical setting or when giving advice. It's not accurate. Um, please say that again and again. Yeah. <laughs> and again, because I swear doctors still use this to this day. I've had exactly. so many clients come up to me. I'm like, oh, my doctor said I'm here. I'm like, bro, you're 15% body fat. Look at how much muscle we have. BMI. I mean, BMI, and that's not to be confused. Most people just brush it off and say BMI is bullshit. It's meaningless. No, it's not. It has a very important role. And like you said, studying large populations. It's massively important when you use it right, right? A hammer is really good at nailing in a nail. It's not good at screwing it. You can't build a whole house with a hammer. It's not used for the individual Mm -hmm. basis. Yeah. And BMI and, or even body weight alone, don't provide insight on the contributions of fat mass and fat free mass or the Mm -hmm. changes in these that may reflect a disease risk at when we're looking at an individual clinical level. So why is body composition important? So as we age, so talking from in the longevity piece, there is a natural increase in fat mass coupled with a Mm. gradual decline in lean mass, specifically bone and muscle mass. And as we're aging, we, what episode did you talk about this? Muscle, muscle matters. We want to hold on to Mm -hmm. muscle as much as possible as we age that is going to give you a better quality of life. That's going to increase your health span. And it's going to allow you to do more activities of daily living on your own. So that's why from a longevity standpoint, it's really important as you're getting older to evaluate how much lean mass we have on our body. Am I holding on to my muscle mass and doing what I can to prevent muscle loss? Then body composition and body fat percentage can better predict health risks than obesity classification and BMI alone, like we were just talking about. This is especially if you fall in, I'm going to say in air quotes, the overweight or obese category for BMI, mm. because you could have more muscle and lean tissue and just and be categorized as overweight. So individuals, even with a high body fat percentage, are at a greater risk of cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, several types of cancer, early mortality. mortality. That's higher body fat percentage. And you can mm-hmm. understand that when you are measuring your body composition. So that that is impactful for disease risk. We're not saying that I'm trying to decide if this is going to be extremely controversial right now, but that's not saying you're... I'm worried. But it's important to... Your body fat plays a role in your health and there's good people that are going to deny that. And there are people that could have a higher body fat percentage and be healthy across the board. Yes. But when we're looking at larger groups of people, 
the risk is there if you do have a higher mm -hmm. body fat percentage, especially if that is around your abdominal area, visceral fat around your organs. Yeah. So it's not just subcutaneous, it's also visceral. So that's something yeah. that I wanted to make clear. But also weight loss in watching the number on the scale can help and absolutely helps. But it doesn't tell you whether you're losing body fat or muscle mass. So mm -hmm. again, it depends on how much, if you have a significant amount of weight to lose, then, you know, watching the scale consistently go down as that metric, yeah, it's important to watch, but it's also important to make sure that you're not losing too much muscle or making sure that you're building some muscle along the way, that we're not losing yeah. all of our muscle mass. Just an example I put in, if you gain three pounds of muscle and lose three pounds of fat, whether or not that can happen exactly at the same time, that's not... A, that's mm -hmm. in it's a different conversation, debate. but the scale won't really change, but your body composition will. And that is important. That matters. So Way that's just more an important. example of how, you know, just we've talked about how the scale can be very unreliable, but there are so many different ways I'm going to say to measure this, but very few that are completely accurate. Mm -hmm. So there's the, Antonia's talked about this a lot, but body composition scales and your like a handheld device can be it's a little metal way. plates. Yeah. Yes. So these are scales that use bioelectrical impedance analysis. Mm -hmm. So BIA, and it's the most inaccurate. So it involves passing a light electrical current through your body and measuring resistance to it. But electricity will take the path of least resistance. And this is what Tony has talked about on the podcast a lot before through your body, which means it will bypass fat for more conductive tissues. So it's very inaccurate. And if you yeah. see one of those at your gym and I remember having a trainer tell me to get on it one day and it was actually really inappropriate at my new gym. She wasn't even my trainer. And she was like, Oh my goodness. Like, I would love to know your body fat percentage. You should like try this. I'm like, that was weird. No, <laughs> that's, that's a weird um, statement. I would love to know you. I've never saw it, yeah. seen someone being like, I would love I'm, to. I was like, I'm just going to not even to analyze that. Body fat move on. But even at that point at the gym, it's not even just your smart scales and those handheld devices. It's even the in-body machines at yeah. the gym, like the three to $5,000 in-body machines with those little metal plates. That's BIA. That's going to be off to up to 10% plus mm -hmm. on your body composition. It's not accurate. Even the mm -hmm. three to $5,000 machine at the gym. I, like we used to do that at Orange Theory when I used to manage a studio years ago in Atlanta. They would have competitions of like weight loss competitions, stuff like this. And that was, it's funny to say, because if that's true, if you gain three pounds of muscle and lose three pounds of fat, the scale won't change, but your body composition will. But you also have to realize too, if the scale hasn't changed in one month and they're yeah. saying like, and you hop on one of these scales and it tells you that you lost two or 3% body fat percentage, you can't gain muscle that quickly. So if that happens. It's over time. It was a funny thing because at Orange Theory, it's like, oh my gosh, like you're not losing weight. It's probably because you lost five pounds of fat, but gained five pounds of muscle. It's like, it takes time. you didn't gain five pounds of muscle in the last 30 days, <laughs> yeah. but it does go to show. Yeah. Those are not the most accurate. That's the funniest mm -hmm. question I've ever heard someone ask. I'd love to so, know your body fat percentage. <laughs> getting, yeah, it's weird. Getting into other ways that you can measure it. This one also not the most accurate, but I want to mention it. Skinfold measurements. So you use a caliper tool designed to measure the thickness of a skin fold. So it's done by pinching the skin and fat under and fat under the skin on several different body parts. I have PTSD from doing this in lab, but there is a huge possibility of user error. So mm -hmm. if the person performing the test doesn't have proper training and isn't doing this, I'm saying regularly, like on the daily, 
not even worth it. Like, even if they, like I'm trained, don't come to me to do skin fold testing because I can't remember the last time I've done it. And mm -hmm. it is, it's tough. It's never going to be completely accurate. And that's why I would say these next two are the most accessible, I'd say for the average person to look at that you could do today, tomorrow. But first being your body circumference. So using a tape measure to measure how wide around, around specific body parts are. So this is usually assessed on the waist, arms, chest, thighs, and hips. You can go online and do, they have like body circumference, body composition calculators, because it is based, you'll input these numbers. You have to, there's a calculation it's based off of that will give you your body composition. But then there's also, if you wanted to do something even just a little bit easier, if you don't want to have to measure all of these different parts around your body so often, you can look at your waist circumference because it is one of the most impactful for overall health. So this is waist circumference is not going to give you an idea of your total body composition. However, when we're looking from a health standpoint, there are certain ranges that you want to be within and that you don't want to be above when it comes to health risk. Mm -hmm. So what it does is it's just a simple method to assess abdominal adiposity that is easy to standardize and clinically apply. So waist circumference is strongly associated with all-cause mortality and cardiovascular mortality. And that is abdominal fat is one of the biggest indicators of certain chronic diseases. So when you're looking at your abdomen and having fat viscerally, so not just subcutaneous that you can touch, mm -hmm. but around your organs, that is dangerous. So I, I don't know if I've talked about this before, but my exercise physiology professor, he got so much heat. He was on the Dr. Oz show one time. He hated him, but it was mainly to kind of like Ooh, show how yeah. dumb he was. He got so much heat for his PhD research showing that you don't need to lose weight to be healthier. You can lose people who have a significant amount of weight to lose can lose that visceral fat first, which is around your organs and not lose any body weight, but we're losing some visceral fat and we won't notice it in a photo. Maybe we'll have a little bit of fluctuation, mm -hmm. but it's not going to be anything that hugely significant, but you will see changes in, you can see changes in your blood pressure. You can see changes in your triglycerides, your cholesterol, because that is the most harmful when it mm -hmm. comes to those biomarkers and your metabolic health. Again, there is how you interpret that people could totally take the wrong way because mm. there are some people, it depends, everyone distributes fat throughout their body differently, but it can still be very helpful. And if we're monitoring our waist circumference, even if it's just like every three months, we're kind of looking at that to make sure it hasn't changed too drastically. It's a very easy thing to do. You just grab one of those tape measures. There's reference. Um, you can look up waist circumference, just what is it called? What are they called when it's like a the number that you're trying to reference for like like a reference a range? range? Yeah. Oh my god, I reference the range. Ref reference number that you're trying I, to put in a range. I hate range? when I yeah. do that. I, I <laughs> like know exactly what it is, but I can't say it. Yeah, you could just look up the reference ranges, and it can be really helpful. And then also, if you're just taking your measurements while you're on a weight loss journey, like that's a very great method of progress. If you're not the biggest fan of the scale, yeah, those um, are huge. Yeah, but then Which, going into oh, sorry. Well, I was going to say, by the way, we're going to 
put down below what we're going to recommend of the best way to track these and then the frequency to track these as well mm -hmm. in the show notes. And if there's yeah. any attachments that go along with that, like the stress score, these reference ranges, things like that, we're going to put them down below so y'all have a recap because I know we're going through a lot today. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. And then lastly, just so the photos. You could take photos of yourself and then there are – what are they called? I know Tony has shared them before, but it's almost like there's photos of other people with a certain body fat percentage yeah. that you can like, compare It's kind of a reference – it's just a reference photo for male and yeah. female where I have the graphs, which we're also going to put in the show notes, but it's more – it'll give you a range of body fat percentages and then what a male or what a female tends to look like there. It's not the most accurate because we no. know everyone carries body fat completely different. Yeah. But it's one of those tools where, because I know that's what people are always like, well, how do you measure body fat percentage? If the smart skills don't work, if that's, you just kind of, the exact number doesn't really matter because if you're in a, if you're a male and you're 13% or 15%, your health's not going to change that much, right? Mm -hmm. We're more looking to guide and say, okay, am I in the 15 to 20 range? Am I in the 25 to 30 range? It'll help you find out where you fit in. Yeah. Yeah. But there are more accurate ways that are typically reserved for research or for professional athletes, like a DEXA scan, like a BOD pod, certain MRIs can do it. So that's what you look for, hopefully, in any research that assesses body composition is some sort of more standardized yeah. measure measurement tool, but there's not many of them. And they're reserved yeah. for important people and things. <laughs> yeah. And it's one of those things... It's one of those things. I know DEXA is probably the most realistic for certain people that really want to get it checked. Where I know you can schedule yeah. it in your area, but it's still going to be a little pricey. You got to schedule it out. But it is one of those things where if you, I think if you have your body composition under control, you're at a good starting point. Maybe checking up on it once to twice a year would be helpful. But then if you're trying to actively change it, maybe upwards of three times yeah. would be helpful. And even taking measurements on like a monthly basis could be something super, it's, it takes 10 seconds yeah. if you have somewhere to record it down which we should totally make a little record sheet in like Google Sheets or Excel and put it down in the show notes for all these. Like just a simple Google Sheet where you could keep track of all this. That'd be cool. Keep of, diff of different metrics. Yeah. yeah. I feel like that could be helpful. That'd be sick. We'll see how much spare time right. Tony and Mariana have. That's body composition. That's like it. Now let's finish off this. One. Let's finish off this list. And this is one. Listen, I don't shut up about it on my social media and everything else. And we're doing a full episode on this in the near future. So we're not going to go crazy in depth, but something that's become more and more popular, I think in the last few years with trackers, with the aura ring is tracking your sleep and paying attention to your sleep and how massively important this metric is. And it's like stress where it's like, mm -hmm. there's not one number that's like, oh, it's good or bad. It's a collection of things that we're going to talk about real quick. Because it's not just the amount of sleep you're getting, it's the quality of sleep that goes hand in hand with that. Because I know a lot of people can sleep for nine, 10 hours. And usually, honestly, if you're someone who sleeps longer, there's actually more negative health risks associated with length in sleep, so over nine hours, than short sleep, which that blew my mind reading through the data. But a lot of it is due to the fact that if you're sleeping that long, it's probably because you are getting very, very low quality sleep, that restorative sleep that you need. And that usually is what makes people sleep for nine to 11 to 12 hours sometimes. But the data, and then we'll go on this in the full episode, is it, was, it blew my mind that getting too much sleep is as dangerous or more dangerous than getting too little. That blew my mind. But neither of them is good. The quality is where you want to look for. And this is where sleep tracking can be difficult. 
because unless you have a tracker like your aura ring or a whoop band if you remember to charge it or one of those special mattresses or something like that even your iphone has an app that technically can do it where it no, senses off of sucks. sound but that's not accurate whatsoever wait can i ask you mm -hmm. do you don't you have to charge your aura ring yeah but it lasts about a week so I'll like leave it on. I just have my charger outside of my sh like my shower. You can shower oh, with it, but I just that. have it there. So it lasts for a whole week because I, I suck at charging things. I used to try it with my Apple Watch, but I that's, would wear my it My Apple the Watch day. is always dead. And yeah. that's one of my biggest problems why I never wear it anymore is because I just. Yeah. It, well, that's why I'm a huge fan of the Aura Ring. One of the many reasons is because people are like, oh, but you can't wear it when you're lifting weights. It's like, yeah, but it's like, what data are you really collecting from a weightlifting session that's usable? I want right? so bad. I just don't versus your actual sleep. Dude, I, we, we, I want them as a freaking sponsor so bad one day. Anywho, <laughs> that's why I'm a big fan of it. I know Whoop does a good job too, but it's the most accurate way to measure your REM, your deep, the different stages in sleep. And why does this matter? Uh, it's hard to find a reason why it doesn't matter, right? Sleep plays a massive role in regulating your endocrine system or your hormone system, especially when it comes to sex hormones like testosterone, estrogen even hormones like growth hormone, insulin, so much more helps get regulated during your sleep. It regulates your nervous system and brain function, especially in like the REM stages of sleep. That's more restorative for the mind where deep sleep is more restorative for your body, right? But your problem solving, your mood, your mental, like certain mental health disorders, right? This is even a crazy stat. I know Dr. Matthew Walker, he's like the sleep doctor, talks a lot about this. He's like, there is no major psychiatric disorder that they can find where sleep is normal. And that's not saying sleep is what whatever, but it is a telltale sign where it's like, wow, there's not a single major psychiatric disorder where sleep is normal, right? It's a massive connection to your emotional and mental health as well. Your cardiovascular system in the repair and healing of your heart and blood vessels, your digestion system and gut health. Sleep, to be honest, like sleep would be a performance enhancing drug if it was something that you could buy at a store, it would be an illegal performance enhancing drug with how much you could really see an in increase. And that's why I bought the aura ring years ago. This is not a sponsored ad by aura. That's why I bought it is because my sleep sucked and I, my energy sucked, my fatigue sucked. It's one of the craziest changes that you can make where you're like, holy crap. I didn't think that could, that natural improvement could happen, mm -hmm. let alone joy, by just paying attention to sleep. Now, what you would be tracking ideally, if this is available to you, more particular, and this is where a lot of the negative health outcomes are actually more closely tied to REM sleep in particular, not total sleep or deep sleep, but REM sleep in particular seems to have a massive and honestly like a linear increase with a lot of different health metrics, right? The less REM sleep, the higher your probability of death when it comes to all-cause mortality. There's actually a recent study. I think it was, I don't want to misquote this. I'm going to look this up after. I think it was through Harvard. Is where I'm getting this right. It's Harvard or Duke, but I'll double check and put this in the show notes below. But for every 5% reduction in REM sleep through the night, there was a 13% increase in all-cause mortality. Just in REM sleep, just in REM sleep was kind of massive, right? So we're going to talk about how to improve all these things real quick. But one, for starters, you want to aim for at least seven to nine. I know that's basic. Seven to nine hours of sleep is the goal, right? that's at least what you're going to need. If you're sleeping less than that, it doesn't matter how good or efficient you're sleeping. If you're sleeping six hours a night, for most people, that's just not enough. That's just not enough. But when it comes to not just all-cause mortality, REM is actually a pretty big predictor of your total cholesterol and specifically your LDL cholesterol, which is more important to pay attention to and really just all triglycerides. 
type two diabetes, hypertension, high blood pressure that we talked about earlier. And honestly, from our perspective, we've talked about how important it is in when you're trying to change your body composition, when you're building muscle, when you're losing weight, it just makes things easier, right? Does bad sleep decrease your metabolism by 50%? No, it doesn't. But the second and third order consequences, that's what we're talking about. It lowers your inhibitions. So when you're deciding with yourself, do I go to the gym today or do I sleep in and rest? Do I eat this meal and cheat out or whatever? Or do I stick to my meal prep? Do I do this? It makes making those harder decisions effortless if you can get higher quality sleep, right? It makes your life easy, right? So we set out some goals quickly that we're going to dive deeper into in that episode. But overall, the three numbers that you want to pay most attention to is your total sleep. Are you aiming for seven to nine hours a night? REM sleep, you want to aim for about 1.5 hours per night and deep sleep about one to 1.5 hours per night, right? So deep and REM are the two that you want to really pay most attention to. Now, how to track that again, Aura Ring, Whoop, Apple Watch might be able to do a little bit if you can remember to charge it. That was my biggest problem. I think the Aura Ring is what? It's like $299, which again, in my opinion, $299, it's expensive. But here's, I changed my perspective when I started paying, I think like 150 bucks for a gym membership. This is like, holy crap, there's other gyms that are like 30 bucks a month. But I'm like, if I break that down daily, that's like five bucks a day for something that's adding quality and length to my entire life compared to a Starbucks compared to anything else. So I started measuring out where I'm like, okay, you're using the aura ring every day or a whoop for, I think 240 plus a monthly membership. You're using it every single day for years. I'm like the cost per use is micro, right? Like the cost per use I get on my aura ring is probably pennies because I'm using it so, so much. And that's, I think a better way to look at it is your cost per use. But how you want to improve, and we're going to talk about more specifically your deep sleep and your REM sleep, because improving them is different. And that's something that we're going to talk about in the episode is people are like, well, how do I sleep better? What supplement do I take to sleep better? It's like, you have to figure out what's going wrong with your sleep in the first part, just like any other problem, right? It's not just one, one thing fixes everything, right? So if you notice, once you start tracking that you're getting a lot of REM sleep, but you're not getting a lot of deep sleep, there's a few things that you can do to improve this, right? One exercise regularly and more importantly weight training because deep is more restorative for your full body restoration right where your growth hormone is released where you're building and repairing tissue throughout your body where REM sleep is more your brain your mind right so deep sleep exercise specifically weight training and even more specifically in the morning sees massive spikes in how much deep sleep someone gets that night another big one avoid eating before bed heavier meals more specifically that was one that I had to change that I had no idea how much it was wrecking my deep sleep. If you're pounding your last meal, if you get home from the gym, whatever, at like 30 minutes, an hour before bed, deep sleep happens in the first half of your night is where you collect most deep sleep. And if you put a ton of food in your digestive system and it's just running through, your heart rate's going to stay elevated. You're not going to be able to follow lower. I'll notice I typically can hit around two hours of deep sleep on a normal night. If I eat a heavier meal, even like at 7.30, 8 o'clock, and I'll try to go to bed at like 9.30, I'll notice that I won't even get an hour of deep sleep. And my heart rate stays elevated until like freaking 2 in the morning. It, I mean, it's a massive effect that most people I just don't think realize. But avoid big yeah. meals before bed. Another big one, avoid long naps and stimulants in the afternoon to improve your deep sleep. So having a caffeine cutoff time, I know I've, I moved mine up to 11 a.m., 
is what I've really noticed the biggest difference is if I have caffeine after 11, it sticks me up. But if you have those longer naps in the afternoon, that can sometimes stick your body from falling into the deeper sleep. And then the basic of just avoiding not just bright screens, but very bright overhead lights one to two hours before bed. So I watch TV before I fall asleep. I'm on my phone occasionally. But if you can at least turn off a lot of those overhead lights in your house, it makes a big difference a couple hours before bed and calming down. And that's deep sleep. Now, REM sleep, right, is really, this one's tough because it's tightly regulated by your circadian rhythm. Something that we even mentioned with the high cortisol spikes in the morning, right? But the biggest thing, and this is the hardest thing for most people, I know it was for me, is having a normal, constant wake and sleep time through the week, seven days a week, not Monday through Thursday, and then Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It means the goal should be trying to wake up within the same hour of every day. So for me, it's between five and six o'clock. Actually, I move that back to about 5.30, 6.30, and then go to bed within the same hour range each night. And that hour range at least gives you a little bit of wiggle room on the weekends, right? We can say 10 to 11 or whatever, but that by far, and that's something that I think most sleep scientists agree on the most, will improve your sleep more than anything else, is a constant wake and sleep time, seven days a week. Another thing you do, Huberman talks about it, helping regulate that circadian rhythm, get morning sunlight in the first hour that you're up, if you're able to, if you have to do synthetic, you can avoid that bright light two to three hours before bed. This is what I started doing is that breath work a few hours before bed to calm down, skip out on alcohol and weed. Yes, that helps you fall asleep faster, but it doesn't help you. I mean, really it helps sedate you faster. It doesn't help you naturally fall asleep faster, but they massively wreck your time in REM and then have a caffeine cutoff time. Those I are the big ones. I used to be, I used to be the person that would, I used to rip my bong before I'd go to bed because my anxiety yeah. would be, I had really bad panic attacks. And so I would get them like daily and I always, I genuinely, I can't believe I did. Like I still, but also like the, when you're young in the environment, I went to university of Vermont, like everyone, it was so normal. Like it was. Yeah. Kind of I mean, like dude, I think Colorado, right? Where that was like the first place it became legal, yeah. like the medical quote unquote <laughs> became legal. That was a joke. But the same thing when I was growing up, it's like, I would just need a little hit of a pen to fall asleep because my mind was racing. It was anxious. And it, again, that one drink, that nightcap or some weed right before bed, you think it helps improve your sleep because it helps you fall asleep faster. That improves your sleep latency. It helps sedate you faster. There's also a reason why if you constantly, I've worked with this for the few clients too, would smoke weed before bed because that's how they help fall asleep, but they would never feel well rested when they woke up in the morning, whether they got six hours of sleep, eight hours of sleep, 10 hours of sleep, they would never feel well rested. It's because you're not sleeping with quality. It helps knock you out faster. It doesn't help you sleep better. What's that's a big on melatonin? One. Melatonin, I've kind of changed my stance on a little bit because it's a hormone in your body. Mm -hmm. So I think- whenever you're taking something synthetically that's a hormone, you have to think about it. I've changed my stance a little bit where I don't think it's something that should be depended on seven nights a week. Mm -hmm. But I think it's something that I've used in the past two, where if you're using it two, three, maybe four nights a week on those higher nights. So I would even go through where like Monday through Thursday, I would help it because I was on the go. I was a little crazier those nights I would, but I'd also have the weekends to kind of help reset. But if it's something you're becoming dependent on, that's when it can become a little scary where if you need that pill of melatonin to fall asleep, your body's just not going to be producing it on its own. Yeah. So it's one of those, I know Huberman's talked about how he doesn't like it, but that's more based on research done in rodents. 
and not actual humans. And there's probably more to change, but that's what I've changed my stance on recently. Yeah. It's a helpful tool, but it's not something you want to depend on. Don't replace weed with a 10 milligram melatonin or whatever, that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. But we'll do more in that and I'll make sure to collect the research for that one. But that's going to wrap up our list of top things to track. I know we have some honorable mentions, honorable mentions, the big one that, oh, that hurt us to leave off. Lipid panel, your cholesterol. Is this the only well, one? I think that was the hard one. Oh. I was going to say another one is always just like a complete blood work test, I mm -hmm. think is important, but that's too broad. But the biggest yeah. thing on there is your cholesterol and lipid profile. I think you and yeah. I agreed on, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it really could deserve a place, but if we were just thinking of five, that was the five. But yeah. the getting a complete lipid panel and it, it looks at your total cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, HDL, and triglycerides. And mm -hmm. sometimes it's hard to get at if you're a healthy young adult and you don't have a history of any family members with these like high cholesterol, it's harder to get insurance to cover it if you don't have really good insurance. So Merrick Health, our panel that we do with Merrick includes a full lipid panel, right? Yep. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah. that's what we'll put because that's why we partner with them is because they're the best in telehealth where it's... I mean, for premium members, they get 10% off their first lab, but everyone else can still use our panels that we got to create with them. Mm -hmm. If you're a premium user, so that five bucks a month membership that we always talk about, you get 10% off your first panel with them there, which I think saves you like three or four months of what a membership would cost, which is funny. But yeah, it's got a complete lipid panel along with a complete sex hormone panel, prostate health, thyroid, metabolic panel, insulin. I mean, the whole nine, but cholesterol it we, when we were looking at it yeah it's like it didn't quite beat out any of the top five that we had mm -hmm. but if we did a top six list it'd be number six e yeah, even if you're younger it started i see a lot of younger people have elevated oh, cholesterol levels yeah and staying on top of it early easiest ways to improve your cholesterol especially you know if you say you're in your 20s and you find out you're slightly elevated again that physical activity piece increasing not like that's not just being in the gym if you're just increasing your daily movement increasing your step count Aiming for 25 to 30 grams of fiber per day, That if you are at like the 10 to 15 range, I'm not saying jump all the way up there, slowly work up, increase by five, five to 10 grams per week. Take a fish oil supplement. We have a full episode on fish yeah. oil. If I say supplement, I will always say food first, so increasing your omega-3 rich mm. foods, but timing can be difficult. Fish oil is well-studied and can definitely help in combination with these other in interventions. But some omega-3 rich foods are like your fatty fishes, salmon, mackerel, herring. Add in chia seeds to yeah. your yogurt, to your smoothies, to your oatmeal, a tablespoon a day. Super easy. Reduce ultra-processed red meat intake. I'm not saying avoid red meat at all. The literature is very clear that that's not the stance we have anymore. Mm -hmm. It's more so the ultra-processed meat, eating that regularly, as in daily. If you do eat it daily, cut it back down to every other day. And even that can make a huge difference. But if yeah, you I think making these other changes, it will also improve. Yeah. I was going to say, I know from the dietary perspective, fiber and limiting saturated fat specifically is something that I know will have the biggest impact. That's, I think that's yeah. the first thing the doctors that actually worked at getting one Dr. Adrian on our show, but he's big into mm -hmm. cholesterol and that's yeah. Saturated yeah. fat and fiber. Two that's why that are great for them. I am. That's why I always like proceed with caution whenever I'm talking to 
Like what people talking about the keto diet, it's very, very rich in saturated fat. And it's not like we are demonizing saturated fat, but Mm-mm. having that much that often does increase your risk for heart disease. So same with the, I've heard, I've had no less than 10 DMS when I've talked about the carnivore, the carnivore diet message me about how insanely unsafe level their LDL cholesterol would raise after a few months in this carnivore diet of just eating nothing but meat and very high saturated fat meat. But Which I don't think be surprised when that I don't happens. think they actually eat that way. The people who are famous on social media for being carnivores. They don't. I think it's but all of it. <laughs> just on social media. But that's it's one of those things which, yeah, we're not demonizing it. But if your diet is 90% saturated fat, don't be shocked when the studied and proven data that shows what's going to happen with high saturated fat diets. Don't be surprised when that happens. Yeah. So what did we learn today? What did we learn today? We learned one I think it's worth the investment. We're going to put all these down below. 36 bucks to spend to get your blood pressure under control. Even if you're younger, if you bodybuild, if you have a slightly elevated number, if you're on stimulants or have high stimulant use, ADHD medication, if you do have chronic stress, measure those, check your blood pressure. It's worth time to schedule in stress management or figure out what works for you. Measure your stress. We'll put that stress test down below that you can just take the subjective one we'll put as well Mm -hmm. and check your HRV if you can. Start incorporating measurements if you can for body composition. Look at your step count. If you don't know, again, you don't need to measure it every day. If you know you're getting X amount of steps, you're good. If you're not certain of where you're landing, figure that out to improve the number. And then if you can invest, if you're lucky enough to invest in like an aura, a whoop, something like that to track your sleep. Again, just in my personal anecdotal experience. We got to partner with them so we can get a discount code for people. That's what I'm saying. Do they work with anyone? I haven't seen it. Unfortunately, yeah. they work with like NBA teams, but you know, I, yeah, we're just as good as an NBA team. Sports. We're just as good as an NBA team. We'll figure it out. There's a, nothing's impossible, right? I don't know if they, I've never heard them sponsor a podcast. I don't think, I don't know. I haven't heard them about. sponsor anybody to be honest, but never say never. So that's what we learned today. Do this stuff. And this is what it's like. Yeah. We talk about all cause mortality down the road. This matters. Do you not think that's going to show up in your everyday life? How much better you're going to feel, how much better your like your energy, your mood, all these things. That's what happens during the rest of your life when you live a long life. It's not like you just, oh, that'll be something I'll worry about in 60 years. That impacts today. The data that, that, we, that we look at later, but that's what we learned today. Whew, that was a long one. I like it. All right. We'll see you all Friday if you're in premium for our Q&A. And we'll see you next Monday. Everybody else.